my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com, one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You're listening to Modern Rules, a production of MSNBC and iHeartRadio. Power corrupts. You see it all over the place. When people get to the top, they say, the rules don't apply to me. I'm better than everybody else. I mean, I think the first thing is you have to have a conversation about privilege and about power, right? And we have to be honest about it. We are taking power away from white men. I want people to understand that we don't live in a society where it's zero sum. That we don't live in a society where in order for this person to gain, it means I must lose. We have to use our voice to be able to say, we don't have to subscribe to these old ways and these old ways of thinking about how the world apportions opportunity. I'm Stephanie Rule, MSNBC anchor and NBC News correspondent, and this is Modern Rules. In this season of Modern Rules, I'm going to be spending time unpacking the hairiest conversations from privilege to political correctness to try and figure out how we can navigate this changing world and break through to actually talk with and learn from the people who disagree with us and maybe, just maybe, learn something along the way. It's easy for me, as somebody who lives in a brownstone on the Upper East Side, as somebody whose kids all go to fancy New York City private schools, I can advocate for social issues because they're far, far away from me. They don't really impact my daily life. And if they did impact my life, if my kids or my family was hurt in any way by this, would I care so much about these issues? Today on Modern Rules, we're talking privilege. And I'm gonna be speaking to a few people who know quite a bit about how privilege impacts us 
both personally and professionally. One of the trickiest parts about discussing privilege is actually acknowledging your own. In this episode, I'm going to dig deep with politician and Girls Who Code founder Reshma Sajani, Army veteran, author, social activist, and CEO of Robinhood, Wes Moore, and somebody very near and dear to me, my own husband, Andy Hubbard. The conversation about privilege is one that is very, very close to me. In my mind, I don't think I grew up with a lot of privilege. Now, a lot of others would say, you absolutely did. You're a white girl from the Northeast who went to a really good school, and then you went on to work on Wall Street, and now you have a TV show. So yes, that sure sounds privileged, but I married somebody who's the definition of it. I mentioned it before. I want to bring him into the conversation in a real way and give sort of this textbook example of the guy who goes to a prep school, who plays a prep school sport, who then goes on to an Ivy League college, and then Wall Street says, come on over. My dearest person, my number one, my husband, Andy Hubbard. Andy Hubbard, my number one man. Obviously, you're my husband. It's why I invite you here today to join me. I'm not knocking how smart or talented you are, but your path seemed really natural. Right, You went to a super elite high school, you went to a super elite college, and then you went and worked on Wall Street. And you and I met because we were in the same training program at Credit Suisse. I went to a public school in New Jersey. I went to Lehigh. I decided I wanted to work in banking. I wrote endless letters to Lehigh alumni. And you and I both showed up in New York City on the first day of Credit Suisse's training program. And when we did, I didn't know a single person. I didn't even know what anyone did there for a living. And you had an awesome network as soon as you got there. The trading floor is filled with loads of guys who look and sound like you, who all played college lacrosse, who were, hey, Andy, come sit with me. Let me teach you. I'll be your mentor. Come join my desk. Did you realize at the time how much privilege you had? In a way, I know it's definitely the lacrosse connection that got me the intro to Wall Street. The class ahead of me at Princeton, I think something like 10 of the 11 lacrosse players went to work on Wall Street after they graduated. And there were many of them saying, Andy, you should do this. It's going to be really great. You're, you're smart. You can figure out these derivatives. You can make a lot of money and, and we'll have a lot of fun. And it'll be great. You should really do it. And so a friend of mine made the introduction. He said, you know, someone at Credit Suisse is looking for a derivative salesperson. You should really give this a shot. So I did. And so I, I definitely knew that it was, it was luck and those connections that brought me there. And, you know, when I got there, it was, it was certainly some lacrosse players, but a lot of it was just other Princeton alumni that I met at the bank who would help me. And so it's incredibly powerful. I mean, I think that's a major reason why some people try to get to these elite schools. I don't think a lot of people go to Harvard Business School for what they learn. They go for the connections. They go for the network. They go for the job opportunities that it gives them because of where they are, not because of what they know. Then are strong networks a good thing or a bad thing? Because obviously they've served you, but you had access to all of these networks and lots of other people didn't even know that these opportunities existed. And because of that, it only further advances privilege. Right. So that's a tough question. I think they are a reality. And they're certainly not fair. Privilege does tend to perpetuate itself. The privilege are going to do everything possible to maintain that privilege. Maybe not everything possible. They often want to make the appearance of trying to level the playing field. But... They're going to try to do that without actually jeopardizing their own privilege. But I think it is a reality. And I think we do have an obligation to try to make society as fair as possible. 
But I think it's never going to be completely fair. But in order to make society more fair, that requires giving up privilege. Right. I think it's simple. It's good for society. It's bad for the people that enjoy the privilege. I think that that's when you get a lot of pain in the world when people had something and it's taken away from them. I think that feels a lot worse than, in many cases, that feels a lot worse than never having it at all. I think that's when people get angry and, and fight for it. They say, you know, I'm used to having this, therefore I deserve it, and you're trying to take it away from me. And I think that's, people fight for those sort of things. If you never really tasted it in the first place, it's kind of like easy come, easy go. So I think- Do, do you really think it's easy come, easy go? Do you really think all the women who don't get top opportunities and in investment banks or minority candidates who don't get to meet the top law firms and then get on the partner track, do you really think they're saying easy come, easy go? Up, oh, just let the white guys have it. I, you know, who cares that I never got to do it? No, definitely not. That's not what I mean. But if you never, you're right, I'm, I'm taking a much smaller view, but if you never experienced something and you had it once and then you never had it again, you don't really come to expect it. But if you had it, you know, every day of your life and that's taken away, it feels different. You talk about this a little bit where I came from this sort of pedigree of good schools and you came from a public school and you didn't have sports kind of leading you into your Wall Street career. I'm sorry. Are you knocking my high school cheerleading career? True. Did that, was that a pipeline to Wall Street? <laughs> no, it was not. It was a pipeline to awesome. So what it was, was a pipeline for street skills and hustle. So, it, it, you know, it wasn't easy for you. It's easy for a lot of, you know, Princeton grads to get an interview at Wall Street. Not so easy if you're not part of these select schools. And so you had to figure out other ways to get ahead. And you figured out hustle, grit, tenacity, which I fear that some privileged kids don't have. So I think I saw plenty of this at Princeton from kids who went to the top schools, just felt they deserved everything just to be handed to them. It just kind of fell into their lap. And so they didn't have that hustle. Do you mean all the young guys who, when you and I were both in investment banking and I'd be doing recruiting, I would interview and they'd be like, sweet, because they knew I was married to you and they were college lacrosse players and they thought it would be a totally easy, awesome, hooked up interview until I would tear up their resumes, swallow them and then kick them out of the room because I couldn't, because I was choking on their privilege. Do you mean those guys? Yes. And, and by the way, I think some of those kids felt it the same when they interviewed with me. They said, oh, I played lacrosse. This is going to be easy. So I would say it got a lot of people in the door, but it wouldn't get them a job. If you weren't qualified, just being a lacrosse player didn't get you the job. There was one kid that I interviewed who absolutely bombed the interview. And so, sorry, I mean, I, you know, I like your sport and everything, but it's not going to cut it. Why um, do you think some privileged people, by nature of being privileged, become awful? And here's what I mean. Think about high school. The prettiest, most popular girls become the most twisted, elite, mean girls. Guys who are the best athletes, right? Think about all the stories of horrible, awful, misogynistic, abusive, hazing behaviors that whether they happen at the best fraternities or on the best sports teams or by the coolest girls. In theory, wouldn't you think that the luckiest people would be the most generous. And instead, you've seen the opposite practices. Yeah, I don't think it's unusual at all. I think- Why, why does it exist? Power corrupts. You see it all over the place. When people get to the top, they say, the rules don't apply to me. I'm better than everybody else. And that's proven by where I am right now. So clearly, the rules that apply to everybody else don't apply to me. 
I can break them. I can be a jerk. I can cheat on my taxes. I can do all kinds of things that they wouldn't let normal people get away with because they consider themselves superior. Do you think white privilege is a toxic term? Yeah, I think if you if you try to discuss it with a white privileged person, they're going to immediately be on the defensive. You're not. Maybe I sound like I'm not, but I think I will try to defend it. You know, I'll say, well, I was aware of it, so it's really not as bad as someone else who was completely oblivious and just expected everything. Okay, I'm saying this in a loving way. You are the portrait to me. You're the portrait of white privilege. Do you feel bad about it? No. I think I feel that it is unfair, and I feel an obligation to try to help those who have not grown up with white privilege. But I think... Are you prepared to give something up? Yeah, I think so. But what I was going to say is I still feel like I had to work hard. So it wasn't like I was lazy in privilege and it just fell into my lap. You know, there's a lot of hard work and sacrifice that goes into getting where I am. And I think so many people feel that way. And that's a way to sort of rationalize that privilege and say, well, I worked hard for this. But on the flip side, there's a lot of people who don't have white privilege who are working really, really hard and still can't get anywhere. Do you think it's worse now than ever in terms of people that are not privileged to pursue the American dream? I don't think it's worse now than ever. I mean, you're the board chair of a charter school in East New York. So you see right here sort of the other side of the coin. Mm -hmm. And I see that those kids who attend that school do have opportunities, do get to attend elite universities, do get an education that they wouldn't be getting if they were in a traditional public school. And so I definitely feel very strongly about education is the key to opening up opportunities to people. And I think it's a shame that the education system in the U.S. is in such bad shape. It really has not improved in a very long time for all sorts of various reasons. But I think it is keeping the underprivileged down. And if we can open that up and give them better educational opportunities, I think that's a way out of the cycle of poverty. We're going to be right back after a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com, one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. 
As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Welcome back to Modern Rules. My next guest, Rushma Sajani, she's a personal hero of mine. She's a woman who truly lives the American dream. A lawyer who, like me, spent her early career on Wall Street. She has since run for Congress and founded the technology organization Girls Who Code. If you were running for office today, mm. people would come out of the gate and say, Rushma, you once worked at a hedge fund. Oh, my God. When I was running for office, this came up twice for me, right? Oh, you worked on Wall Street. You worked on Wall Street. And I was like, listen, I had $300,000 in student loan debt. <laughs> I was helping my parents pay for their mortgage. Oftentimes, it's the most privileged liberals who are making that charge at us in the first place, who didn't have to go work anywhere because mommy and daddy were paying for college and their apartment and their rent and all of that. And so we don't have enough conversations about what's happening with privilege in my own political party. Okay, so to that exact point, my own family uh, who voted for the president has said to me, Stephanie, you're a luxury voter. We're not. And lots of people vote based on the fact they need to be able to get by. If they run a small business, they don't want to be hit with regulation. They don't want their taxes to mm -hmm. go up. And issues that matter to me, you know, that are hot button issues, is it easy for people of privilege to care about those things because they don't directly impact them? I spend most of my days at Girls Who Code, quite frankly, converting white and Asian men to give up their privilege to let the rest of us in to technology. And I go there. I am, nothing makes me more excited than speaking to a room of a thousand white men and going real deep about feminism and like women in technology because I can see the snickering. I can see the laughing in the beginning, but towards the end, I see a shift in, in their thinking and their consciousness. And I'm happy I took the effort to have that conversation with them. Even though I knew when I walked in the room, we didn't agree. How are you getting to that shift though? Because every night of the week, if you turn on conservative media, they will tell you there's a war on white men in this country. And they will tell you everyone from the left running for office is an immigrant, lesbian, one-legged, anti-military. And you have millions of people who watch that every night. So how do you get that room of white men and Asian men who might be saying in the back of their heads, my 17-year-old son is never going to get into college because uh, suddenly we only want diversity candidates. How do you convince those people that giving up a bit of their privilege will make the world better? I mean, I think the first thing is you have to have a conversation about privilege and about power, right? And we have to be honest about it. When I walk into a room and we talk about girls, we are taking power away from white men and Asian men. And we often don't have that conversation in the workplace. So then what happens is like in the interview process, all of a sudden women and people of color are not qualified and they don't get hired because we really didn't go to the root of what the problem was and the root of what we're asking people to do. We're asking you to step aside a part of your opportunity to let someone else in. And part of your reason why you're there is your unearned privilege. Then can't you understand why there are people who want to protect their of white privilege? Of course I do. Right? The of thing course. that's most important to me, even more important than country, is family. And do I think that I want to protect my sons over anything? I do. I think we say I understand why you feel that way. 
But to me, it's the longer view, right? And in many ways, I'm in the thick of like on my book tour, Brave Not Perfect. And I, part of what I say to women is we always put other people before ourselves. So they're putting their husband's self-interest before their own self-interest. We always put our children before us. But what if they have daughters, right? They're basically, quite frankly, screwing their daughters, right? Over what, what they feel is like in the white male kind of patriarchal interest. And we always do that. And that's seen as being feminine. And that conversation, quite frankly, needs to shift. But I think that most women are making that choice, not because they deeply want to make it, not because they believe it, because that's what they think is right and what they've been told. You know, white privilege is obviously, it's a nasty term. No one wants to admit that they have it. No one wants to admit Why that they is use that? it. So yes. I, I, I have South Asian women privilege for sure. People but, think, oh, Rashma, you're Indian. You went to Harvard and Yale. You're smart. You're safe. I can trust you. How do you know that? Or like, they attribute you got into those great yeah. schools in part. Well, they wanted a South Asian right. woman. Or there's a quota for too many Asians. And so you really must be smart if you got in. I acknowledge that every day that I have, I have privilege. I have privilege because of my race, because of my gender, uh, in that sense, or actually more because of my ethnicity, I would say, than my gender. And every day I, I think about that, and I hopefully run my organization in a way that acknowledges that, and I do step aside. It's hard for people to say that they have white privilege because they feel guilty about it, yep. but separately, because they also say, I'm struggling in my life, Reshma. I don't feel privileged. I can't pay my bills. Yeah. So do we need to take away the stigma. You need to acknowledge that you have it if you're going to solve for it. And right now, nobody wants to acknowledge that they have it. I generally think that shame is not a good thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I generally think that like to not talk about something because I don't want you to feel ashamed or bad is not a good thing. I think full transparency, openness, authenticity about the conversation is the best way to go. Just hold on a second because we have so much more to get into. We'll be back right after a quick break. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com, one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public. The list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary... What's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Hey, everyone. This is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts. It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting. Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more. Here's a clip from an upcoming episode featuring the weekly home checks, Keyshawn Lane, that you won't want to miss. 
a common mistake that a lot of people do. They use fabric softener when it's not so great for your clothes. Should we never be using fabric softener? No, you should not ever be using oh. fabric softener. Oh. It leaves a deposit on our clothes, which is also left in the machine. And it also makes the clothes highly flammable. Wait, what? <laughs> yes. What you want to do instead is just use a quarter cup of vinegar. And that'll make them softer? That'll make them softer. And if you wanted some kind of scent, you can use essential oils. Wow, wow, wow. Catch new episodes of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult every other Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Grown Up Stuff. Welcome back to Modern Rules. My next guest is an extraordinary man. Army veteran, social entrepreneur, Rhodes Scholar, and current CEO of Robinhood, a foundation fighting poverty right here in New York City, Wes Moore. He knows quite a lot about privilege. He works alongside some of the richest people in Manhattan to improve the lives of some of the poorest. He was once one of the poorest right here in New York. So I knew I had to bring him into this conversation. Wes, you now work with some of the wealthiest people on the planet, truly, uh, with the work you do with Robin Hood. In the last couple of years, more and more people have said philanthropy isn't a good thing. It's the way that people who've rigged the system are now paying away their guilt, paying for their privilege so they don't have to acknowledge it. What do you say to that? I'm actually in agreement on the idea that philanthropy should be tested and pushed to do more. The idea that philanthropy will not be enough, that the giving will not be enough, that philanthropy must be used and leveraged and pushed to be able to actually address the structural challenges that exist. Because the reason we have so much inequity, the reason we have so much disparity in our society is not because philanthropy hasn't done its job. It's because we have policies that are actually making that real. We have policies that are both putting people and keeping people in poverty. Do I think we need to have a very real conversation about the way we think about wealth and wealth distribution and why currently right now that the average black family in this country has one-tenth of the wealth of the average white family? Yes, we do. And so how do we think about this idea, looking at sacrifice as not something that has to be a, well, I must lose in order for this person to gain? But it's simply saying, if I can create space and opportunity for other people to be able to gain and to be at the table, I actually can gain too. Is that what you want people of privilege? Is that what you want white people to understand? Bring another seat to the table. You don't have to give yours up. Yes, I want people to understand that we don't live in a society where it's zero sum. That we don't live in a society where in order for this person to gain, it means I must lose. It means that we have to use our privilege we have to use our voice to be able to say, we don't have to subscribe to these old ways and these old ways of thinking about how the world apportions opportunity. We don't have to be miserly or arbitrary when it comes to the way we think about who actually gets a seat at the table and who actually gets a chance to grow and to thrive. Get a bigger table. Get a bigger table and use your privilege to get a bigger table. Use your privilege to make sure that there are more people who are there and involved. You know, But it's not about, let me give up my seat, but it's about, why are there so few seats at this table in the first place? Who's pushing that narrative that in order for you to get an opportunity, I'm going to have to give my seat up because that narrative is getting louder and louder? I think it's fear-mongering. It's telling people to be scared of something and then telling people who's to blame for it. It's telling the coal miner in West Virginia, the reason for your pain is the person coming from Mexico. 
right? It's telling, you know, the mother who feels like, you know, well, my son can't get into a good school. And the reason is because of that African-American kid who the school is now giving an unfair advantage to, right? And none of this stuff is backed up by science. None of this stuff is backed up by data. It's fear-mongering. And it's dangerous because they know it motivates people. Mm -hmm. People are motivated by fear. They're motivated by what scares them. They're motivated by what they don't know. And so the only way that we can combat that is if you increase that level of both proximity and humanity. It's difficult to be scared of something that you actually know. It's difficult to, to, to have a prejudice against something about something that you actually have an understanding of. It takes away the whole definition of prejudice, of prejudging. I can't prejudge something that I actually understand. Wes, if I had to describe, there's a lot of ways I would describe you. But one of them would be you are very realistic. And while I think you might be fundamentally idealistic, you don't bring your idealism to the table. You are a very realistic man. So when purists would say, don't you ever accept money for New York City's poorest people from somebody who made their money on Wall Street or who made their money in the subprime crisis, which made people lose their homes, don't you give those people a pass for the privilege they have or the money they've made on people's backs by taking their money to help the poor. What do you say to those people? Well, first thing I say to people is I don't give anybody a pass. I'm not built that way. Um, But the second thing that I would say is I ask you to walk with me for a day. And what would I see? Walk with me through the communities that I walk through every day. Walk with me into the schools that are telling our kids everything that our kids need to know about who they are and how our world sees them without ever having to say a word to them. We send messages to our families and to our children every day by the air we ask them to breathe, by the water we ask them to drink, by the schools we ask them to go to, by the jobs we ask them to take, and by the pay we then pay them. And then turn around and tell me that, you know what, Wes, you shouldn't care about any of that because this money is this or this money is that. And I'll say, listen, I'm fighting this war with every weapon I've got. Then take me inside that school. I think about some of the kids that we have been spending a lot of time with in Baltimore recently. And um, there's a phenomenon that Baltimore is dealing with right now called squeegee kids. These are kids who, when cars are at red lights, they walk up with bottles of Windex and squeegees and they spray windows and ask people for change. Like in New York in the 80s. Exactly, how, how New York dealt with it. And people are saying, I can't believe Baltimore is still dealing with it. And, and it's, it's caused a real level of debate within Baltimore where people are saying, you know, you got to get these kids off the corners and they're inconveniencing us and they're aggressive and they're begging for money and so on and so forth. The thing I, I want to remind people about the young men and young women who are doing this is this. These are kids who are choosing not to be corner boys. What's a corner boy? The ones who are out and selling dope and, you know, selling drugs on corners. Because that would be a much easier profession for them to take in a city like Baltimore. They're choosing not to be trigger pullers. They're choosing to go up to your car and stand in 90-degree weather and ask you if they can wash your windows for change. Because it's all they've got. Many of them are homeless. Many of them are the main breadwinners of their family simply based on the $150 maybe that they'll make doing that. These are kids who the trauma of poverty sits on them every single day in such an unfair way. They didn't choose this life. They didn't choose to be born into poverty. They didn't choose to have opportunities that were nowhere near available. They're just trying to figure out a way until they can figure out a way. 
the thing that I would ask people to do is before we are so quick to cast judgment, let's better understand the journey and how people got there. The reality of what our kids are facing, and I say poverty not as an urban phenomenon, but it is a rural phenomenon, it is a suburban phenomenon. This reality of poverty and neglect that we are asking children and family to go through is unbelievably real. And so before we just simply castigate or talk about who was receiving undeserved privilege or undeserved opportunities, I would just ask people to take a moment and remember the humanity and remember the privilege that we all have, the privilege that we have to even make a statement like that with a straight face. Do you think there are some members of society, of American culture, that are so privileged that we're ignoring parts of our society that are suffering? And where I want to go to here, only in the last couple of years have we heard this pushback about this idea of being a global citizen. And in the last couple of years, more and more people have said, global citizenship doesn't matter. What's important is to be a good American citizen. And that's like kind of gotten political in this America first thing. And this gets to this not in my backyard idea. So when some of us who are in this elite class and we think we care so much for others, are we missing the point? Are there people right here in our backyard suffering who are being neglected and somehow we're so privileged we can't see beyond our, our front door? Yeah, yeah, there are people all around us who are suffering and challenged and going through very real obstacles just to try to make a way. I will never get to the point that I'm going to allow my nationality get in the way of my humanity. These are people. These are human beings. These are children. And so we have to be able to protect and take care of the things that we see right around us. And we trust me, we have plenty of issues that we still have to be much clearer and much more assertive in the way that we think about the things that are happening right here in the U.S., right here in our cities, in our rural areas, in our suburban areas. But I am never going to let that get in the way of understanding that just to turn your eye to turn your eye against another human being simply because they weren't born in the United States. What does that make us? Not only that, it completely contradicts the whole concept of the birthplace of this country and what this country was supposed to stand for, what this country was supposed to mean. That it was a place that says, give us your weak. Give us your tired. It didn't say, show me your W-9. It didn't say, tell me about your family lineage first. And so I categorically reject this idea that somehow taking care of people somehow means it's neglecting the ones who are closest to you. The poverty in this country is a choice. We've made this choice because I think as a country... We strive on this concept of excellence. We strive on this concept of winning without understanding that there are consequences to everything that we do. We have this idea and we have this belief. And when you look at the history of this country, that the history of this country is that we have amassed an extraordinary amount of wealth and power in a remarkably short period of time in context of world history. We also have to be honest as a country about how we've amassed it and the fact that we've created a lot of losers in the process. 
people who were not acknowledged, people who we have used in that process, and not given any real sense of opportunity or platform without simply looking at it as a pittance. Where when we look to support those who are the most vulnerable, we call it a program. Even though when you look at so many of the systems that we have in place that have benefited the most privileged, we call it a system. That's the way this country has apportioned opportunity oftentimes. The thing that we want to be, and I insist that we are as a nation, thoughtful of, is the fact that we don't have a fair playing field right now. We don't. And what breaks my heart about that is that it doesn't have to be that way. If you look at it on a proportional level, are there going to be certain people that might benefit more because they're coming from such a massive deficit? Yes, and I'm fine with that. We have enough wealth and resources and creativity here that you can have a system where we can actually fundamentally address things like dire chronic poverty, generational poverty. We can address this. We can do this. And we can do it in a way that people who have opportunities and privilege right now won't feel nor need to feel threatened. Are you optimistic? Very. Why? I'm optimistic because I spend time with people every day who motivate me. I spend time with people every day who all the other political talk and this and that, they're not bothered nor moved by. They get up with a fundamental mission to take care of their family and take care of their neighborhoods, and that's exactly what they do. So right there, do you think we've seen a rise in hate crimes in the last few years? We hear more about these rants and these incidents, but do you think that a huge portion of our population or a growing portion is rooted in hate? Or is it about hopelessness? Because if it's hopelessness, we could change that. Yeah, I think it's rooted in fear. And I think the fear is what is then driving all of this. It's a fear that I am somehow losing something. It's a fear that somehow I will be on the short end of whatever type of progress or momentum is seen. And so fear will drive people to do a lot of things. So what's the counter to it, love? I think the counter to it is love. And I think the counter to it also is opportunity. If you show people that there's real opportunity, if you show people that you don't have to, there is something worth sacrificing for, I think that actually counters the fear argument. So is your message, help us create opportunity equality? Because the way you're framing it to me, I hear Goldman Sachs, don't take away any jobs from anybody who, who's qualified. Add 10 more. You can afford to. Harvard, you've got an unlimited endowment. Build another building. Add another 100 kids. Is that your answer? And also, how are we thinking about the apportioning of opportunity in a fair way? Mm -hmm. Right? So it's not just about asking X corporation to add 10 more or, add, or asking Harvard to add another building. It's about having the conversation with Harbin and saying, what's your responsibility to the HBCUs and to the community colleges? You know, what's your well, what responsibility? Mean? It means that we have institutions that have historically been chronic winners in our society. And they've also educated such a small portion of our society. So, for example, when you think about the best schools in the country, and 
I know investment banking the best, so I'll say it that way. Investment banks have relationships with five schools, right? Five of the top, top schools. And everybody else, their resume ends up in the non-target school pile. I know it. I used to run non-target school recruiting, right? That's a wasteland. And maybe somebody wins a lottery ticket and they get pulled out. Are you saying to me, Harvard, Duke, Penn, and those companies need to say, hold back a second. Harvard, what are you doing to help the career services department at a historically black college? Because they don't have the history or the infrastructure or the relationships with companies to give any of those kids opportunities. So what what you're talking about is saying the most privileged institutions, whether they're companies or schools, they need to check that privilege and saying, how do I pay this forward? And if that's what you're doing, the summer internship is your gateway to get a full-time job. So if you can't get on that program, you're about to sit there in debt with no job opportunity. If I have extra hours, I don't have an opportunity to go get an internship. I need to go get more hours at the Winn-Dixie. Or I need to go get more hours at the Walmart. Or I need to go get a second job at Papa John's. That's okay. how this game works. But then works. to that point right there, Wes, all of these great companies and these internship opportunities, those internships don't pay any money. Yeah. Or they pay such a little amount of money that, that kids who need to support themselves can't ever get those jobs. That's right. Is that what we need to address? Yes. And I think so. We have to think more creatively about the way we are truly supporting the future of this country than just simply saying, well, I'm going to add an internship program here or I'm going to recruit from this new school in a different way there. I think these large organizations, these large corporations, uh, these large institutions of, of higher education, they have an obligation not just to build up their own personal endowments. They have an obligation to be able to say, what am I doing to support the other institutions inside of my area, inside of my jurisdiction, to make sure that they can fundamentally support and serve the other students who might not make it into my university, but I know who are just as important to the future of my community as the kids who are walking onto my campus. So right there, what you're talking about is not philanthropy or charity. That is making a strategic move to make your community, your city, your company a stronger, better, smarter place. We need to move from charity to justice. Ah, good answer. That's what this is. I don't believe in charity. I believe in justice. And so I think that the way we have to view all of this work is, you know, we can have a philanthropic wing, a philanthropic angle to our work, but I don't see Robin Hood as a charity, as a public charity. Robin Hood is a social justice organization. What it is is understanding the the situation that exists right now has historical context and historical underpinnings. You know, we don't have the levels of disparity that we have in our country right now by accident. This is a deliberate frame that has been hardened over years. And so this is not about taking a blame. I don't believe in the idea of taking a blame because I think that doesn't actually get us anywhere. What I do believe is we have to address the current existence, and that has to be done with a historical context. Because we are not where we are simply because we just fell into it. We are where we are because there have been historical laws, historical policies that have helped to get us here. You take a city like my hometown of Baltimore. You can't understand the structural deficits and the inequity that exists within Baltimore without understanding the history of redlining, without understanding the history of blockbusting, without understanding the history of predatory lending, Mm -hmm. without understanding the history of banks deciding who they will and won't lend to, which entrepreneurs are and are not worth the investment. Before I joined Robinhood, I was critical of philanthropy. And and I still am in the historical sense of what philanthropy 
is or what philanthropy has always been interpreted as, right? This idea of, yes, I can write a check and somehow that's going to be enough. The thing and why I'm so proud to lead this organization now is this is an organization that understands, yes, that's not going to be enough. We have to address structure. We have to address the fact that, you know, you can put, you know, all the money into affordable housing or whatever that you want. But the reality is this. If we don't also reinforce and fight and advocate for a right to counsel, because one of the fastest growing reasons and one of the largest reasons why people end up homeless is because they are in homes and they are being evicted because you have landlords who have an incentive to be able to kick them out because then you can raise your rent up to market value rates. So we have to be able to establish that people have a fundamental right to counsel because we have to do everything that we can do from keeping people from getting evicted from their homes. If we don't understand that a person who's coming back from prison and a person who has paid their debt, when they come back home, we can say, yes, you know, we wish you the best of luck. But by the way, you can't live in public housing, you know, even if your family's there or you can apply to colleges. But remember, you can't get Pell Grants. And so we continue to have asterisks next to people's names. So the reality is, is that every sentence ends up becoming a life sentence. That's not something that philanthropy can fix. Philanthropy's job, public charity's job, Robin Hood's job, is to not just use our capital to be able to address a very human pain that exists right now, but it's to use our capital to make sure we don't have to have people that have to have human pain in the first place. So here's what I've heard. Privilege exists. But a lot of people struggle to recognize or acknowledge it in themselves. It makes us very defensive. And here's the thing. If you want to address inequality, it is not about giving something up. It's about democratizing opportunity. If we've got privilege and we say we care about equality, this idea that we may have to give something up to give someone else a chance, it's not about giving your seat up at the table for someone else. It's saying, let's buy a bigger table. Let's make more room. Privilege comes in many shapes and sizes. I started my career in the old boys network of Wall Street. And although I lack the obvious privilege of guys like my husband, I realize, yes, he may have had a leg up, but I was still in the room. It's about saying, let me acknowledge what I have. Let me understand someone else's position. And let me say, is there a way more of us can rise together? And at least acknowledging it is the first step toward figuring out my own privilege. So what am I going to do? I'm going to keep having conversations just like this. This has been our conversation on privilege. Thanks for listening, bringing an open mind, and helping me create the modern rules. Want more of this conversation? Go deeper and read this week's Modern Rules feature only on NBCNews.com slash better. That's it for today's episode. I'm your host, Stephanie Rule. A very, very special thanks to the extraordinary people who made this happen. My producers, Julie Brown, Samantha Ulin, and Ann Barak Audio. Michael Biet for booking and wrangling the amazing guests who joined us. Julian Weller for editing and Bill Plax, Michael Azar, and Jacopo Penzo for their recording expertise. Special thanks to Steve Lichtig, Barbara Rabb, Jonathan Wald, Marie Dugo, Holly Traz, Nikki Etor, and Christina Everett. Our executive producers are Connell Byrne and Mangesh Hatigador. 
And of course, the men who brought us all together, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia, Bob Pittman, and Chairman of NBC News, Andy Leff. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. Hey everyone, this is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts. It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting. Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more. Let's learn about all of it and then some. Listen to Grown Up Stuff How to Adult on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Grown Up Stuff. Grown Up Stuff. In the 90s, New York detective Louis Scarcella locked up the worst criminals. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it. Then jailhouse lawyers took aim, led by Derek Hamilton. Scarcella took me to the precinct and lied. 20 men eventually walked free. Now, in the Burden podcast, after a decade of silence, Louis Scarcella finally tells his story. And so does Derek Hamilton. Listen to The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.